All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got the Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 32nd year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a complimentary portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And finally, if you'd like to send us an email, if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to cover here on the Money Wise program, and you just don't hear us talking about it, we'd love to hear from you, so send us an email to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. As we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up about 310 points, or 1%. The S&P 500 last week was up about 48 points, or 1.2%. And the NASDAQ last week was up about 239 points, or 1.7%. Now, for the year to date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 2.8%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is up 4.8%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 9.4%. NASDAQ shot out of a cannon once again so far this year. I mean, you just annualize the NASDAQ number. It's mind-blowing. It's close to 60%. Yeah. So it, it's another it's good, the, solid, record-setting record, yeah. record, you know, record setting week this past week. I, I believe Friday's closed. Uh, all three averages closed at, at record highs. And I uh, think the big question, and I've definitely been getting this question more from clients and just friends, a little bit of hand-wringing, is like, how much longer – can this go on until we see some type of substantive correction? But then my follow-up question to their question, because I hate to answer a question with a question, what would that catalyst be? What is going to be the catalyst to cause a corrective move? Is it just simply buying exhaustion when you have trillions of dollars of cash sitting on the sidelines? Because what did we have? What? What's so funny? The reason reason I'm laughing is that – Dad wanted me to send you a memo to stop to stop saying that. <laughs> to stop saying there's trillions of dollars of cash on the That's sidelines. Right. Yeah, is that not true? That doesn't mean all of it's going in stocks. Well, no, I, I know. I uh, well, well, hold saying. on. Let me let's talk about Dad for oh, a second. Is, 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 oh, okay. Oh yeah, let's he's talk not, about Dad for a second. Wait a second. He's not here to defend himself. So I, I'm not gonna. Better. I'm not. I'm not gonna offend. I'm not gonna <laughs> offend. But I know a lot of our clients and long time. Money-wise listeners have been jonesing for dad. We promise we're going to get him on the air soon. But I love every morning when I log into our stock analy- our, our stock analytical system. 
and I know Dan no. still has no. access to it. Okay. Because yeah. I always get to see the last thing, because Dad is a night owl, so he stays up late. So I get to see what he was looking at the night before. Not pot let, stock, right? No, not, <laughs> not pot stocks. No, not pot stocks. But I did notice earlier this week, the last stock he was looking at, Dad, I caught you, it was a shorting ETF of the S&P 500. So we know Dad has been more in the bearish camp, or as we used to say, he has a little bit more bear breath than the three of us. But I always catch him on what he was looking at before he went to bed the night before. Every morning I log into the system, and it was a short S&P 500 fund. So, Dad, I caught you. We know you're bearish, but you've even proven it with this. Yeah, it's probably a short-term investment that he's considering. But yes, dad has dad's uh, dad has had his concerns about the market based on historical statistical data. And I even before the show, before we started recording the show for this weekend's Money Wise program, I was posing the same question that it, it has been. Uh, I, I'm trying to. It was the last summer since we've had a 10 percent correction. Well, it's it's been yeah, it's been it's okay. been quite a while. It's been so, quite a while since we have a ten percent pullback. I, I think what what the what investors have to understand is not every run of the mill, if that's the right term to use, uh, normal, or the one that I really hate, quote unquote, healthy correction, because it never feels healthy to watch the portfolio decline in value 10 or 15% in a correction. That, it's not great for my health, but it happens. That's just, that's just the way the markets are. But they've always recovered from every single one of those corrections. And a correction is not necessarily an investable event. Now, do protracted bear markets generally begin with a correction? Well, I say, yeah, generally they do begin with a correction. Uh, do I think the next 10 or 15% correction that may be getting closer and closer on the horizon is a precursor to an extended bear market period like we had at the beginning of the 21st century? No, I don't see those, those ingredients there because we always round back to the fact that continues, even though interest rates have inched up a little bit here uh, this you know this year, we're up maybe what two tenths, three tenths of a percent on a ten-year Treasury yield, but we're still at one point two percent yield on a ten-year Treasury as of close of business on Friday. You know, I don't think you're going to. That's it's not, not competition to stocks. It's, it's not, not competition, competition to stocks. There will be a yield in the future, whatever. Whenever that is, and, and sure. none of us, none of us know what that crystal ball, how long it's going to take, but there will be a point in the future where interest rates get to a level that they are more serious competition for stocks. But I believe a 1.2% treasury yield as of right now is still lower than the uh, composite yield of all the S&P 500 stocks put together. It is, and and, and and that's and and that's the thing, and and I totally agree with you, Jeff. I mean, all of you, all of us on the program would agree with you that there will be eventually a moment in time where the bond market interest rates, the yields, and fixed income can and will attract 
assets out of the stock market. But I don't think we're anywhere close to getting to that point. And you well, know, one other thing that pushed the that pushed the market this past week is we once again had the Federal Reserve reiterating their dovish position. And there's an old saying on Wall Street: "You don't fight the Fed." And I know Dad would say that's enough of talking about the Fed for this weekend's Money Wise that, program. That's an old saying on Money Wise. That's don't true. Talk about but, the Fed. Don't well, yeah, don't, yeah, don't talk about the don't Fed. Don't fight That's right. them and don't talk about them. That's yeah, the don't future. fight, don't talk about them. So we talked as enough about the Federal Reserve as we're allowed to, according to Dad, for this weekend's <laughs> Money Wise show. So let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. The Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a complimentary portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162 and if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, just talking about corrections in the market. Uh, we've had, a, again, a very nice start so far to 2021, the market with the NASDAQ being up 9.4% a year to date with an annualized number, you know, close to 60%, which we know even in this economic recovery that we're currently experiencing, albeit slowly, from the COVID uh, pandemic, global pandemic, that we know that these numbers can't be sustainable in the NASDAQ. But there's also, and you know, we've talked about it on this program time and time again, the quote-unquote healthy correction and how we hate using that term healthy correction or the financial entertainment press when they say healthy, because when you're seeing your account down five, seven, 10, 15%, there's nothing healthy about it. Definitely not for your blood pressure. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think when they're talking about healthy, it's, we'd rather have a 10% correction than a 30 or 40% crash. It's so Sure. True. But true, I, I want to clarify something that Kyle, I want to clarify something that Kyle said. You said, you said something about the, uh, the, I don't want our listeners to interpret the statement that you made about the NASDAQ is that we believe that the, that the current valuation of the NASDAQ is unsustainable. What we, meant, what we no. mean is the pace at which the NASDAQ is appreciated year-to-date 2021, 9%, you know, almost 10% in six weeks is not sustainable in the long term. It's not a sustainable pace of, of growth extrapolated out in the future. Yes. So, thank, you for, thank you for the so, further clarification. What's you know what's interesting? You don't hear anybody talking about oh well. It looks like they're rotating out of those technology stocks now. Remember that? Remember they hearing that drum beat at the beginning of the year? Yeah. No, not not hearing that anymore. Oh, and what else are we not hearing about? We're not hearing about GameStop. We're not hearing about Robinhood. We're not hearing about all the you know. All oh, this is just an indication that the market is just like it was in the late 20th century at a three-year protracted bear market is just around the corner. No, no. It's just, you know why? Because just regulators step one. in. Well, then, well, well, regulators, you know, brokerage firms, they they put they they pump the brakes no, 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 to no, allow no, things no, to no, get. No, too wait far. a second. No, 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 no. It wasn't the brokerage firms. 
or the regulators that ended what was happening with GameStop. It ended under its own weight. True, but when, when, we had these brokerage firms and the regulators backstopping to at least give some of these Reddit traders some pause to think a little bit. But I agree with you, Jeff. It ended under its own weight, but now they as were it talking, always does. It yes, always ends under its. But the, they were the regulators are going to do nothing. But they're, they were discussing. There's, they're they're going to discuss all until they're no, blue no, no. until until wait a second until it moves on to some other subject. They're not going to change the rules because Wall Street wants the rules to stay the way that they are. And every once in a while, Wall Street gets their heads handed to them. And the quote-unquote smart investor, who I think was really involved in that trade to some great extent also, uh, every once in a while, it, the, the tables get turned and they lose a little bit of money. But do you really think there's going to be any sort of regulation coming down about this? The answer is no. What was the other interesting story this week about Bitcoin? Elon Musk coming out with a tweet and said that, 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 that Tesla bought $1.5 billion with a B dollars of Bitcoin and are going to allow folks to buy their vehicles in Bitcoin. Some of the banks have also been talking about allowing trading in Bitcoin. Uh, I, I, did I see, was it MasterCard that was talking about? Allowing transactions on their platform to be to occur. Well, pay, PayPal, which, which okay. is a stock we own in the portfolio, they they allow transactions to occur in Bitcoin. But 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 here's the thing that they left off, or they didn't talk too much about about the whole Tesla buying 1.5 billion of Bitcoin. Is days before he talked about Dogecoin or whatever to try to drive up the price of this dogecoin which is a brand what? new yeah it's a brand new digital currency like bitcoin it's just another iteration that was yeah. created by some by some tech right. guys called dogecoin so elon musk text about or, or tweets about that drove up the price of dogecoin dropped the price of bitcoin by, by tw- okay <laughs> basically once again elon musk is going to get away with doing a little bit of public market manipulation in the digital currencies. Okay. He did it this past All right. week. All right. He did the same thing with GameStop. I mean, that's why the regulators can't come in. I mean, he thumbs his he nose. He thumbs his nose at the SEC. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. The SEC got on him about making comments about his own company stock. That's True. What the SEC they didn't they didn't say he could he couldn't make statements about any other company stocks because by by that uh, with that logic then that means that you we can't come on our show each week and talk about some of the stocks that we own or other guys that come on CNBC all the time and talk about their books and what they what they own. I mean, everybody's talking up their book. I mean, more power to Elon Musk that he's got enough followers that he could actually move something. I, I bet he sits sits. He's probably in a, in his you know his backyard sitting by his pool. And said, "Watch this." And he watch goes it. on his phone. Honey, watch this. And he and he. That's and what he real power puts, is. It puts a tweet out about a particular security, and then you got the TV going in the background. It's like, "Watch this stock go up as I send out this tweet." He's like the puppeteer. That's what he is. Well, I mean, you Carl Icahn has done this. Warren Buffett has been doing this. Bill Ackerman has been no, doing this. About, no, I don't know about Warren Buffett, but. Are you know, kidding me? We, we Warren know, Buffett announced we know, that Apple, we know that the, you know, the, the OG, the OG 
using the media to promote uh, my book, who would the OG be? Jim Cramer. He yeah. wrote about it in his book in the late in the 1990s during the dot com crisis. But what Warren Buffett does is he announces it obviously after he buys it, okay. which then drives the value up. What does this mean Apple? for long term investors? Nothing. Nothing. This, this is trading. Just giving everybody an, an idea of what's been going on in the markets this week. We don't own Dogecoin or Bitcoin no. or whatever coin. We don't trade currencies. No it's, digital it's, currencies. It's all, it's all wonderful and nice that banks and brokerages and payment processors may start allowing. You know, when they start allowing me to buy groceries at HEB or Walmart or go down to Cheddar's or Chili's and pay for my dinner with Bitcoin, it'll be interesting. But does that mean I'm going to go out and, and, and buy Bitcoin as currency? No, because we don't, we don't even trade dollars. We don't trade currencies at Davidson Capital. We don't recommend any, uh, you got to be a very sophisticated investor to trade, you know, futures and all that. That's not something that we do. It, it's, it's all very interesting, but I also, also kind of go back that you know, this, all this interest in it is because it's decentralized and it's, uh, anonymous. It's almost anti-government. And, it, and, and it's and it's not. Uh, you cannot hack it. And when I start hearing that sort of thing, the sooner, the more and more it gets popular, regulation is not far behind. Yeah. And and the more somebody keeps telling me that you can't hack it and can't steal it, well, what? Well, wait a second. No, people have had Bitcoin stolen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know. Don't tell, me it's not, of don't tell me it's not hackable. There's people trying to figure out how to hack it all the time. Mm. How are you going to hack my dollar bill in my hand? I guess rob, rob you, you of your wallet. That's about it. No, no, no. But, well, yeah, they got to they gotta physically can rob it from me, but they can't hack it. They can't steal no. my, my paper dollar from a computer. No. No, they can't. But here's the other thing is your paper dollar one day is worth a dollar. The next day it's worth a thousand dollars in that same because of the volatility of Bitcoin. So that's the other thing. You know, how many retailers are going, are going to want to do business in a quote unquote currency that fluctuates in value that much each day? Yeah. They're not going to want to. They're not going to want. There's no stability. It's just a trading vehicle. That's it. It's a trading vehicle. It's It's, not a long-term solution. It's fun to talk about. It's fun to theorize. It's fun to. But but at the end of the day, it's no different than GameStop. (laughs) Personally, it goes up in value because more people want to own it than want to sell it. And then when the when the big players in Bitcoin want to pull out and cash in and make their make their dough and realize their gain. You're going to see what happens to Bitcoin. We've already seen it. We've seen Bitcoin be run up years ago to just have the rug pulled out from under it. Now it's run up again. The the situation is it's been around long enough to get for people to think that it's legitimate. That's in anyways. That's a whole other because yeah, but I mean, just just longevity doesn't. That's true. I mean, it's a good point, Joe. But longevity doesn't always equal legitimacy. It really doesn't. But I, I understand your point. It's known. It's a lot more known than it was three, four, five years ago. But, but, but the same but it's thing. Still not the, it's still not the standard of business. Uh, you can't transact business you, universally with Bitcoin. That's but you right. can with dollars. 
That's right. Well, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a complimentary portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So we got off course a little bit going into Bitcoin. I guess we weren't anticipating going into that, but I mean, it was a story from this past week on Wall Street with what uh, Elon Musk and uh, Tesla are doing, accepting Bitcoin to purchase their vehicles, plus their purchase. Tesla is a corporation of 1.5 billion in Bitcoin. But I wanted to go back to talking about, you know, corrective moves because I've been getting this question from clients because we have had such a nice long run over the course of several months. Now I know what 3 weeks ago we had a down week, we had uh, kind of a pause that refreshes and we're getting back to the task at hand, getting through the fir- fourth quarter earnings season which are again continuing to be positive earnings. Um, I know one of our stocks on Friday had a nice uh, intraday up of 20%, ended the day up double digits. Uh, But earnings continuing to come out very positive for the companies in the S&P 500. And now we've got this stimulus package, which is progressing, still looking at $1.9 trillion with a T coming from the Democratic Congress and President to help with this COVID uh, recovery, economic recovery, uh, what, 200 million more doses ordered, 100 million for Pfizer, 100 million for Moderna. That was announced this past week. About 17% plus of people in the United States have gotten their two shots in their arm. I know dad finally got his second shot this past week. 17%? 17% they said have been vaccines so far. Um, in the U.S. And I know that there's going to be a percentage of people that aren't going to be getting the vaccine. But when I look at, we've got 100 million Pfizer on order, 100 million Moderna on order, 100 million has already been ordered. Our population in the U.S. is 323 million. We're making it for other countries, too. <laughs> but yeah. But the U.S. is the one that ordered it. And is paying for it. So well, once again, we're going to be the just like we're the police force with our taxpayers' dollars. We're now going to be the medical provider with our taxpayer dollars. I think you had asked me in the first segment what I thought the catalyst might be to trigger a correction. A t- a correction whether it's you know, the the classic definition of a stock market correction is a decline of at least ten percent or more of if it goes beyond 20%, then they call that a quote-unquote bear market. Catalysts, you know, I can think of a lot of different catalysts. One of them, which was dispelled at least for the for the next month, is higher inflation. And the CPI came out on Wednesday this past week, and for the second month in a row showed the core CPI number and I'm not going to get into how they compute, how the government computes it, showed no change in prices now for two months in a row, December and January. 
they obviously leave off, leave off fuel because that is a new tax it, that we're all paying across this country. Thanks, Joe. But, but they've all that's they've all you know. Anyway, so sorry, I had to take a, my shot. I had to take from, my shot from a consumer price index point of view, as measured by the government. There is no inflation in the economy. We all know that's not true. <laughs> I love that. No inflation in the economy. Yeah. Sure. So, and, so, and I've got and I've got oceanfront property in Arizona. I want to sell right. you, Jeff. It's awesome. The question I get most for most folks is is there's this worry about you know rapidly rising inflation, like what happened, well, like the concerns that there we had in the 2008 2009 financial crisis when all the money was being thrown into the markets via quantitative easing that it just it's going to lead to this uh, uh, hyperinflation type environment and we've had all these trillions in stimulus and getting even you know we're going to get some more trillions if this latest uh, uh, bill for you know covid relief covid relief goes through but none of that has really resulted in uh, inflation is measured by the consumer price index to go higher. Now, home prices are certainly up. All the materials to build home pr- homes are, are certainly up. Uh, cost of labor to build cost of labor is certainly going is up. going up. And and with this COVID package, they're trying to set this fifteen dollar minimum wage across the country, which is a horrendous idea. Right. So. Inflation, rapidly rising inflation would be one catalyst that might give the market some pause for sure. The other would be, now we've just talked about all these, you know, all this, all the vax, all, all of the drugs being produced for the vaccinations, hundreds and hundreds of millions of doses, they still got to get into people's arms. That still has to happen. And in order for that to happen, we got to have more people doing it. And if, and if the pace, there's been a lot of complaining about the pace of the vaccinations and if the pace of those vaccinations occurs as such that we're not getting the, the, the rapid, the velocity of the recovery that, that the market seem to be pricing in right now, well, that might give pause to uh, the pace at which the markets have been going higher. That'll show up in various economic statistics, but I think most importantly, the unemployment statistic, which has really been lackluster here the last few months, and the markets have shrugged it off. I mean, I, I can't say it you know, any better. They have just absolutely shrugged. They, they shrugged off that. Well, you want to know. Not, okay, go ahead. Well, well, this is some of the reasons why they're shrugging it off. One, because during this COVID pullback that we saw the COVID pandemic last year and a lot of people staying home, they were spending less. So a lot of people that were fortunate enough to keep their jobs, God bless. And unfortunately those that lost their jobs during this COVID pandemic is that they've been able to pay down debt. We've seen credit card debt drop, drop dramatically. Then they get the unemployment benefit. In some instances, some people were making more money per week with this unemployment benefits. The government was getting them in 2020, again, continuing to pay down debt, save money. Now we've got people, some of them that are almost or close to being debt free. Now they're going to get another stimulus check. We're going to see the stimulus checks possibly going into savings, but also finding its way into the stock market because during the COVID pandemic of 2020 is introduced a whole new generation to investing through Robinhood, 
through these other free trading apps that is getting more money in more hands and getting millennials and younger investors involved and interested in Wall Street. So then you tack on trillions of dollars, which I know dad doesn't want me to talk about, but the trillions of, because it goes against his bare, be- bare breath thesis. <laughs> My goodness. We've got I all these. Say that again. Yeah, say that fast five times. We've got all these trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines in cash, almost to the level we had during the financial crisis in 08, 09. You've got a dovish Fed. You have a Fed calculating monetary inflation differently, which will prolong keeping interest rates lower for longer so it's not creating competition for the stock market. Their, and lower, their interest rates lower for Their longer. interest rates, not, yes. Not, Excuse me. Yes. Their, the, federal, the federal funds rate lower for longer, which keeps bigger purchases cheaper, which can help. And then you have the Treasury Secretary, also who is dovish, Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen is also very dovish and accommodative. And then we have all this stimulus money coming from the government. So I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word a perfect storm because storm kind of paints the picture of something dire, but you have all these positive ingredients that are still there that even when and if we get this pullback and the velocity of it and the depth of it, we still have all these positive ingredients that can make this corrective pullback as a buying opportunity. Because Jeff, you and I both know, and Joe, we know how many hedge funds took it on the chin last year. Very prominent hedge funds took it on the chin last year because they didn't believe in the equity markets. They didn't participate at the level that other money managers did. And they have been suffering ever since. And so there's a lot of professional managers that have been playing more on the sidelines that are looking for buying opportunities and they're wanting, they're needing this pullback as a buying opportunity. So, I mean, what what, what Kyle is saying is essentially look at a correction, a garden variety correction or whatever you want to call it as perhaps an opportunity to get into the market. There is a lot of money to be out there. And as soon as we do have that correction, you might, you might have a a pretty quick buying opportunity where there's an influx of, of liquidity that's going into the market. But now, 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 I, you know, looking into 2022, yes, we, we all know, and I think we all cash, three, though. we are, and, and we, we have done two steps of three of adding more money to the equity side of the market, but we're bright, we've been bringing in new asset classes like emerging markets. We've been creating a dividend sleeve or basically a part of our portfolio, both bigger individual stock and bond accounts and our asset builder program, a dividend, uh, side of the portfolio, which is creating higher income that we're not able to get from the bond side of our portfolio. So we've talked about that for weeks and weeks on the MoneyWise program. And so we have been building these positions and we're not done yet. So would I like to see a, a short, you know, two, three week corrective move as a buying opportunity for the cash we do have on the sidelines? Absolutely. I and would. Even, and even when we finish this last set of purchases, once that's done, the overall asset allocation of stocks in our portfolios will still be lower than it was a year ago. Because where, where were we a year ago at this time? Go back and listen to our show. We were talking, 70. we were at all-time highs, yeah. and we were at 70% allocations of stocks, and COVID was really just starting to get some attention uh, from the media, and and soon the biggest 
down month, you know, March 2020 was right upon us. Okay, well, hold on, Joe. Let's hold that thought. Let's take a commercial break. You listen to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a complimentary portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So Jeff, I know you wanted to kind of wrap up this subject before we get to the top of the hour break um, concerning kind of corrective moves. Everybody's I'll let you make that point. Everyone's always concerned about is this correction that make that we're going to we're always going to have corrections in the market it's just a fact of investing but not every correction is an investable event not every correction leads to a more protracted downturn in the market everyone is try, you know, there's all these prognosticators trying to to be the person that predicts the next 30% down 40% down so they could go tell their newsletter writers look at me i called that top in the market, come subscribe to my newsletter or my service blog, blog, whatever it is, you know, as, and they'll keep predicting, Oh, well, well, yeah, well, it, it's coming. And then it doesn't have, Oh, well, it's coming. It doesn't happen, you know, over and over and over again. No one calls them to the carpet about the other 20 predictions that they made that were wrong. They just make sure to, to remind everybody of the one prediction that they got right. Um, <laughs> that's all they market, that, you know, cause it's they, the one prediction yeah, let's, let's, let's market the one time I was right and forget about the other 40 times I was wrong. Who's that sound like? Well, that sounds like David Tice. Tice. Yeah. That's or, 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 or this is, or this is how horrible your performance would be yeah, if right. you actually had invested in my fund from the very <laughs> beginning. We throw, sorry, David, we throw you under the bus there. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> Well, it's true. We're speaking it truth. It is. And so if your portfolio is diversified in stocks and bonds and inside the stocks, you're diversified amongst industry groups, you know, not every industry group suffers more than others. I mean, the ones that suffer the most typically in the correction are the ones that had done the best previously, right? That's typically what happens. But if you're running a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, one side of the equation, stocks, might be declining in value for a period of time. The other side of the equation, bonds and cash, is typically staying steady in value, maybe rising a little bit in value. And so the two kind of offset each other, but they're not one for one offsetting each other. So if you're running a balanced portfolio, you shouldn't be afraid of a run-of-the-mill correction because that's just part of the market no one knows what the catalyst is going to be yes joe well i remember last year kyle talking about this that your asset allocation is your first line of defense when you have that correction and there's no further proof than that we can look at than last year in the first quarter and having that allocation being the right stocks giving us a buffer Right. But the, other, the first quarter was very unique, but we were also very actively managing the portfolios 
really? uh, by, by and, and that in that particular case, we were reducing stocks very quickly um, as the pandemic was really, you know, as the, the, the economic shutdowns were, were really starting to happen in earnest. And then on the other side, you, when the when the Federal Reserve steps in and when the government steps in with stimulus and uh, and we started to see the numbers, you know, the, the COVID numbers start to stabilize as people took, uh, you, know, stayed, you know, stayed at home and worked from home. Uh, then the market started to see things in a more positive light, and then it was time to start taking advantage of some of those lower prices and, and putting some money back to work. The point that I, I probably didn't get to complete in the previous segment was what I was trying to say is when we finish these last purchases in our, our 10 dividend stocks in the portfolio, that will get us up to the asset allocation that we're going to we're going to be at for the foreseeable future until such time we feel the need to make another change. But that level of stocks in the portfolio will be less than where we were a year ago today in February of 2020 when we were close to 70 percent plus the moderate. makeup. Plus the makeup of the portfolio yeah. itself, and then the makeup of the portfolio is different. We we've gone to a more equally weighted. Uh, portfolio, at least in, in the larger accounts. And we, as you t- said, Kyle, we have emerging markets in our portfolio this year, which I believe is the uh, second best in terms of stock groups. When I was looking at all my list of uh, things, the NASDAQ was the best. And I think emerging markets was, I think, a number two or number three. Um, small caps have done exceptionally well year to date. I don't know if y'all have noticed that. Um, Russell Russell 2000 has been uh, the place to be. You know, to see small capitalization stocks doing this well is investors anticipating better times ahead. Well, and I was going to say, Jeff, so far the leading index so far this year, year to date, is the Russell 2000 up over 15% year to date with NASDAQ number two. Um, and then when you look at emerging markets, emerging markets up just under 11%. So it'd be Russell 2000, small cap stocks. Then you've got the emerging markets followed by the NASDAQ. So <clears throat> there's, a, 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 again, allocation is a little bit less to stocks compared to the same time frame last year. The makeup of the portfolio is different uh, with creating that dividend basket more of a dividend basket in our portfolio is this bond surrogates as we were talking about but back to joe's point about asset allocation it's really a three kind of a three-prong approach with the first prong being the asset allocation first line of defense then you have to have your your screening process to make sure you have the best of breed in there. So security selection is another prong to your portfolio success. And then the third prong is the active management in making those adjustments. It's not setting it and forgetting it. And I know, Jeff, you'd worked with a prospective client in the Corpus Christi market this past week, who is the antithesis of setting it and forgetting it in a portfolio that was set 12 plus years ago. Well, not touched. Well, he would be the he would be a great example of set it and forget it in some yes. respects, but not all. Um, the other the other thing I wanted to mention real quick about the fixed income portion of the portfolio. I know we've got only got a few seconds left. Is the, the fact that we've had our sh- maturity shorter this year? We have positive returns in our bond portfolio. 
those that are invested in a moderate or a more or a more longer maturity bonds this year would, would see negative returns because interest rates have been going higher. And that's why we've always said if you don't own individual bonds, you own it in bond mutual funds or exchange traded funds, duration is your friend. In a rising interest rate environment, you have to keep your duration short. So with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour for Money Wise listeners on 1200 WAI in San Antonio. We'd like to thank you for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. If you'd like to catch the second hour and past Money Wise programs, you can go to our website, davidsoncap.com, and click on the radio show link. For our listeners to Money Wise and Corpus Christi on 1360 KKTX, stay tuned because when we come back from the top of the hour break, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education and the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on an on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand, and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what 
what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length really post-financial crisis. Um, And the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an actual an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors Again, goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry, where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, we're registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial to use advisor. financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It it, it does, and again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401ks and of course and Barack, president yes, obama, president obama has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the Department of Labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards Securities and Exchange Commission why don't you put these standards in as well and Mary Jo White the head of the SEC makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place, but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years, so why is it just being 
intensely studied over just the last couple of months. Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, the story. The no, you didn't check the clock. the 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 real world example I'm going to give, and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean, several, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, excuse me, had already retired, had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, 
and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, uh, the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting, I, I told him, whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha, got it, understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay, comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure, why are you here? He said, well... I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers at different offices at different firms in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity, that annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to 
relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. Now, stockbrokers, also called registered representatives, account executives, financial advisors, wealth managers, are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high-visibility advertising to portray themselves as full-service investment advisors. It's real easy. Ask your stockbroker. If he or she holds a Series 7 securities license, if he or she does, then it's it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And... It's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress this enough to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds, as a fiduciary, we have to go with the government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable. What is best as a fiduciary? And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to it, to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And it, I, I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interest in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's a, what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for. Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. 
So again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big name brand broker dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these, for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. And it's also important and when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage-type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where... My clients, as a mutual fund wholesaler, were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, In every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds and some not so good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now again, this was in the late '90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, it's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis. 
because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. And they were, the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like, let's get a little more liquid, let's, let's get some money on the sidelines, let's get some cash on hand? And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue-sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have a love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio, we could bet the potential client you own one of these funds from a particular fund family just because we've been doing this you know in our 26th year of business and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years we see a pattern we see a trend and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms it's no surprise now listeners are probably you know y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking well gosh how can brokerage firms do this it's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's, it's suitable. It, it's They're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands them this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like, yeah, I, well, no. no, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fun families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas 
and they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners, and I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice office. He sounds the off- part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. We, and he asked him, would you give me the account? Well, sure we would. And he said, would you like to know what my experience is? And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ. And he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show, about just the number of don't, – don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you, think, making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because, again, it's all marketing. Um, but, you know, I, will, I do want to talk about uh, financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show, and – Financial planning has has really become a, a really booming industry. And there are designations, a certified financial planner, which is a very difficult designation to get. You have to go through a lot of education, a lot of test taking. It is not easy to do. Plus, you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation. And we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation. It is. But... You have to be very, very careful how this potential financial how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool as a way to sell investment products, as a way to generate commissions. So you have to ask, as the prospective client, how are you getting compensated? Are you fee-only? Are you fee-based financial planner? Or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission? And you need to ask those questions. And if they're not giving you a straight answer, that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away. You, as a prospective client, have the right to ask a straight-up straight question and get a straight-up answer. Ask them, do you have your Series 7? If they have a Series 7, pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions. And that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard, if they say, well, I have my 65, which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative, without a Series 7 or a Series 6, then they'd be leaning more on the side of fee only. And, of course, at Davidson Capital Management, we are completely fee only registered investment advisors, which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients, the more money we make for ourselves, and vice versa. We are not compensated based on commission. And being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries. We have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our client's interest in front of our own. But you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I have said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, 
And, you know, what we've also talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're, or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, typing in the Google search broker check, and that will take you to the FINRA website. And FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily, but you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months, I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. Going to so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line is dotted, you have to utilize all the, the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, 
and doing what's called a broker check by Googling broker check. takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in high the school, yeah, in high school, you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U4. And it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I found a gentleman here in town, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order... I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business, um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us and there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. Well, I mean, Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat up on brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. Though that's really what they're there for. They, you can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't 
want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with, they won't know you from Adam, and you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction, where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets. You can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. From my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.